for the weak. We do not train to be merciful here. The man face you, he is enemy. Enemy deserve no mercy. Sand of Roar. Try to be best, cause you're only a man, and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to be Welcome to Now Playing's The Karate Kid Retrospective Series. It's not tournament, it's for real. With the upcoming reboot starring Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan, Brock, Arnie, and Jacob will be looking back at all the Karate Kid movies, culminating in a weekend of release review of the new film. Sweep the leg. No mercy. These podcasts will contain spoilers, and you can find a new podcast each week at nowplayingpodcast.com. Ask one more small request. And if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a positive review on iTunes. You're a pushy little bastard, ain't you? I like that. Today we're talking about The Karate Kid Part 2, starring Ralph Macchio, Pat Morita, Denny Kamikona, Yuji Okamoto, Tamlin Tomita, and Nobu McCarthy, directed by John G. Avildsen. Amazing how I had trouble saying director's name more than the other names in that cast. Golf clap <laughs> on getting those names right, by the way. Golf thank clap. you. Thank you very much. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Jacob. And this is Arnie Machio Man Savage. And here we are with The Karate Kid Part 2, picking up exactly right where the other movie left off. But first, before we even start this podcast, much like the movie does, Arnie, do you want to give us a plot summary? As you just said, we pick up right when the last one leaves off. You get to see the aftermath of the karate tournament. Miyagi and Kreese have their little showdown. Miyagi, of course, wins because Miyagi never loses. And then we fast forward six months and life has changed. It is the end of Daniel's senior year. He and Allie have broken up and it looks like he's going to have to go to Fresno to stay with his mom for two months because she got transferred for work. But Miyagi agrees to let Daniel stay with him. However, Miyagi gets a letter that his father is ill and he must go to Okinawa. Daniel goes too and they return to Okinawa where Mr. Miyagi must face his past with Sato, his childhood friend who Miyagi's father also taught in the ways of karate. However, Sato was betrothed to Yuki, but Mr. Miyagi was in love with Yuki. Sato swore a fight to the death against Mr. Miyagi. Rather than fight, Miyagi left the village. This is his first time returning to find Sato still holding a grudge, still wants to fight to the death. Miyagi's father dies. Sato has come to own the whole village and tells Miyagi if he runs off again, Sato will destroy the village and ruin the farms of all the villagers. So Miyagi must stay and fight. However, a wonderfully timed hurricane intervenes. Miyagi saves Sato's life. Sato forgives all grudges. But Sato's nephew and henchman, Shozen, has been antagonizing Daniel their entire time in Okinawa. Shozen crashes the castle party at the end, takes Daniel's new girlfriend, Kumiko, hostage, and Daniel and Shozen must fight, presumably to the death. And who will win? Well, it is called the Karate Kid, so Daniel wins and does not kill Chosen. 
So now that the summary's done, we're going to go into a lot more detail on it, but let's talk about this opening scene. Yeah. Before the opening scene, we get something that just, oh, it just reminds me of the 80s and before when people didn't have VCRs. We're going to recap the first movie for you because you might not have seen it since theaters. Not only well, that, though, that they didn't do a Superman 2 beginning when they had the recap the entire movie. To me, it felt like they cherry-picked scenes that are going to come in handy for you to know about or remember about for this second movie. Everything that they did in the first part of this montage of the first movie does come into play, including certain lines. Did you not notice that? Yes, you are correct. It was very picked. But by the same token, it does still bring you up to speed to where we are. And initially, I had in my notes that I wouldn't have recapped the whole movie. I might have done kind of just uh, Back to the Future 2 where you just redo the very end scene and just pick up with Daniel in the karate tournament. I was like, why are we seeing all of these other scenes? And then as I see the movie go on, you know, some of these other scenes are about Miyagi talking about his father. He talked about his father a lot in the last movie. We talked in the last podcast about how that movie was a lot about father-son relationships. I don't think they had the sequel in mind, but my God, did they pick up on a great thread there, Miyagi's father. I, I was going to say, it seemed like they were pulling a saw here where they took a few lines from one movie and, and spun off a whole uh, franchise based off of that, you know, whatever backstory <laughs> was there. Because it seemed pretty tight. It seemed like they might have had some of the stuff in mind, who knows? But it didn't, you know, there weren't any big continuity breaks. The one thing, though, is Stuart in a previous podcast had talked about how there are certain tropes that sequels go to. And isn't one of the big sequels, like if you have a buddy cop film and one of the cops has a problem and his partner has to help, in the sequel it's reversed and now the helper has the problem and they kind of switch roles? Boy, did you beat me to it. Because Crocodile Dundee, the same thing. The first movie, he's he's foreign in New York. What are you in the second movie? You go to Australia and the girl is now the foreigner. It's exa- exactly. It's exactly the same thing. You actually remember Crocodile Dundee 2. That blows my mind. You're right about the Stranger in a Strange Land reversal. I hadn't even necessarily thought of that. But in the last movie, Miyagi was helping Daniel because Daniel was being bullied. Here, Daniel's helping Miyagi. And Miyagi is, to some extent, being bullied by his childhood friend slash eventual nemesis. Of course, because they're adults, it has much bigger stakes. And as all sequels need bigger stakes anyway. But felt like very much of a role reversal here where this time Miyagi was the one who needed Daniel's help. Well, you brought it up now. I'm going to ask you about it right now. Do you think Daniel really helped Miyagi in this movie? Because I think you're absolutely right about the role reversal. But when you get to Okinawa, did Daniel really help Mr. Miyagi all that much? He was there to help him. He was there for support. I actually think Daniel kind of overstepped his bounds. Miyagi's going to Okinawa. It's like, I'm coming too. Really? Daniel-san, me no invite. (laughs) Exactly. But just think about what I just said, and you don't have to answer me now. I know what you're saying, and did he help in the fighting? No. You know where he helped? He helped Miyagi find his balance. Miyagi needed a stabilizing presence. I thought about this, and I I told you, I just said I didn't think Mm -hmm. Daniel should have gone. Daniel should have gone because Miyagi was about to go through a lot of emotional crap, and he needed somebody there for him. And that That's why Daniel went. And I thought, you know, watching this movie as a viewer, Brock, if you were going on a trip to see your father and I came along, that might be quite a stretch. And you'd be like, Arnie, I still don't get why you're here. (laughs) But these two have such a close father-son dynamic. And I started thinking about when my grandparents died and how my parents needed somebody to lean on. And that's why Daniel was there. The scene where Daniel helps Miyagi the most is after Miyagi's father dies and Daniel talks to him on the beach about how he wished he could have been a better son. And 
wished he could have been there for his dad more. And we find on this movie, Daniel is the son of a dead father, not divorced, which was my theory from the last movie. He helps Miyagi find his balance and realize that what Miyagi did was the right thing to do. And it's helped a little bit also by Yuki, who says that Miyagi's father was proud of Miyagi for avoiding the fight. But Daniel is there not to help. You know, he sure, he does have Miyagi's back, but he's not going to win a fight against Sato. Where Daniel's there is for the emotional support that Miyagi needed and to help Miyagi keep balance in Okinawa. Now, yeah. I agree with you. That wonderful scene when, they, when he talks about his father, absolutely there for emotionality. I completely agree with you. It also helps Sato to realize the grudge with Miyagi should come to an end. Those certain instances, absolutely, Daniel is needed there. But I overall... The way that Mr. Miyagi was there for Daniel in the first movie, if we're talking about how this movie is turned over so the other person has the other person's dilemma, it's not exactly equal. Brock, I think you take things too literally. In the last <laughs> podcast, you said you didn't see how it's rocky because, you know, it's a slightly different story. And this time you're like, well, it's a slightly different reversal. I'm talking generalities. I'm not talking every last detail. I'm really, you're just taking it far too down to the letter of what I'm saying and not the spirit of what I'm saying. I have a reason for doing so. I have a reason for doing so, and perhaps throughout the podcast, I will let you know why. But I agree with you for the most part, especially those two scenes, those, in those two instances I mentioned already, it certainly is completely wonderful that Daniel is there for Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, I like those emotional scenes. I, I tear up during that one scene where great. Uh, Daniel's helping Miyagi get over the death of his father or to at least not get over, but to come to terms with it. A beautiful scene. Like, I, I'm getting emotional right now. I feel all tingly and, and everything. Yeah, it's fantastic. But as far as the rest of what Daniel does in Okinawa, I, I don't like it. I don't like that he becomes the focus character at the end. I understand they have to do that because it's Ralph Macchio and all the 13-year-old girls dig him now, and he has to be the hero. But this movie was so set up to be Mr. Miyagi's story that I wish it would have ended up being that instead of Daniel taking over the hero role. I don't understand why we get so much Daniel in this movie, especially what they do with Daniel in this movie. I completely agree with Jacob. Let, let's back up a little bit, though, before we get there. Let's get into the good stuff, because I like the first <laughs> half of this movie. The opening scene, I said in the last podcast that part of me felt Crease needed to get his. The sequel made it so that I could kind of have my cake and eat it, too, because the last movie did end on the perfect note. Daniel gets the trophy. That's what you need. That's where the, you roll the credits and where they did roll the credits. But Crease still needed to get his, and so we get this early scene taking place right after. And what I like about this scene is, in addition to tying that bow on part one, it sets up themes that are going to carry throughout all of part two. You, the viewer, are led to wonder, is Miyagi going to seriously hurt slash kill Kreese? Although, if you're an intelligent viewer, you know that's not Miyagi's style. Miyagi doesn't roll like that. But you're kind of given this dramatic music, and he's holding his hand up to karate chop Kreese's neck. And instead, he does this honk on the nose, which, by the way, I hate. But I thought it was a good way to have our cake and eat it, too, and set the tone for the new film. This opening scene, if this was a novel, this would have been the last chapter they cut out because it's just it loses the momentum of that final fight scene i, I don't know i'm kind of torn if i would have actually liked this as the ending of, of the first film because then i wouldn't have to watch the second one at all pretty much i love this first 10 minutes i, I understand why it's at the beginning of this film because it does set up those themes for later on but 
I don't know. I, I wouldn't have minded it if, if the first one ended this way. It didn't need it, though. And we were already at two hours with the first movie. So I can see why this was cut. I agree with the decision. But it's just so nice to see all the Cobra Kai's back. They got the gang back together. To see Johnny turning against Kreese, it brought warm feelings to my heart. And they're familiar characters, so you could get right into the movie again. It's not like all these new characters getting introduced. You're like, okay, I know what's going on. I know these people from the first one. I had the novelization the young adult novelization of the first Karate Kid movie. And they actually the made this into a book? <laughs> a, 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 kid's, a kid's version. Okay. I, was, I, was I could be wrong. About- I don't have the book anymore, but I could be wrong about this, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. Jacob, what you just said is right. This epilogue is in as the last chapter of the first book. It was in the original script. It was in the script for part one or something very similar to this. Right. Was exactly. in the script for part one, and they they didn't film it. This was filmed as part of part two, but it was from the script of part one. It's just, you know, it's a great note. And again, Miyagi never has to throw a punch. It, it, he said later in the movie, best way to avoid punches, no be there. So he makes Kreese beat up his own hands. How awesome was it, too, his hands completely bloody? Oh, I, I loved that when I was a kid. Love yeah, it. I loved that scene. Loved it. Absolutely. What's missing from this scene is Allie and Daniel's mother. They're at the yes. restaurant waiting for them. Uh-huh. <laughs> no kid They're going to have a waiting. Se- <laughs> yeah. They want to have a, a theme in the movie. <laughs> which is also a theme in the movie because he says it later on in Okinawa. Don't keep women waiting. They fast forward six months. It's a hard six months on these characters. They're looking a lot more out of high school, or Daniel is. And he's tanner. He's really much tanner. Well, he's had this all this time in California now. Yeah, no kidding. And he, and he he's seems- a Jersey boy. Come on. <laughs> and they did something here with Elizabeth Shue, which some people think they should have done the beginning of Back to the Future 2, found a way to write her out. They didn't do it there, but they did it here. But here it seems so weird. Oh, they that, trash her in this movie. Yeah. They, it just I, bugs me so much how they treat it her. It does, because we spent so much of the last movie invested in that relationship and seeing it. And yeah, it's a high school relationship. Sure, they're probably not going to be together after high school. But the way it's done is just so dismissive and just, oh, it, it's painful after really feeling for them in part one to see him just go, she tells me she's in love with a football player. Couldn't she have at least lied to me? Just, oh, God. And she wrecked the car. <laughs> Yeah, no <laughs> the word I used was dispatched. They just dispatched with her. And it just didn't make any sense from the first movie's relationship. And as Stuart would say, we keep bringing him up. He's not even here. <laughs> He's here in spirit. It's beginning of Alien 3 when they dispatch with Newt so quickly after all that stuff with aliens at the end of Aliens trying to save her to kill her off so early in the, in the third movie was unsatisfying to the people who loved the characters from the previous movie. And, and you know what I think it is? Daniel's going over to Okinawa. You have to have that love story. There's no way to get Allie over there. And you don't want him to look like the bad guy. He's the hero. You, he can't be the one cheating on his girlfriend. So they got to get rid of her, and they got to make you make sure that you sympathize with Daniel and not with Allie. They want to make sure Daniel's the hero. He's the good guy. He deserves to get a good woman, so let's trash Allie. Let's defame her. Crap all over <laughs> her in this movie. Make her the worst person in the world. That You know, you're right. Uh, they did have to get rid of her for that reason, so that he could have the love story in Okinawa. But by the same token, it just, it felt so wrong. But the character I missed more was the mom. I, I can't believe that actress was unavailable to do one scene at the beginning, just to make it feel 
feel a little bit more tied together because it just felt so much like it is like a sequel where the only two characters who are carrying over other than that very first scene are Daniel and Miyagi. You know, it's even the Lethal Weapon films kept bringing back Riggs family. (laughs) (laughs) And then Mr. Miyagi explains that he already talked to your mother about you could stay here. It was just so convenient. It was just very forced and very unsatisfying how they tied everything up. But they wanted to get it moving to tell the story they wanted to tell. Yeah, but it was done poorly. <laughs> Agreed. And then to continue with the done poorly, they have the most overly talkative postman I've ever seen on movies. <laughs> All right, let me ta- let me ask about this postman. In our last podcast, we talked a lot about themes, right? I want to know if you guys thought, if this theme is here, I didn't feel it was as well developed as the themes in the first movie, but is there a theme here about Japanese-American relations? Because first of all, you've got Crease in the fight at the beginning calling Mr. Miyagi slope. And then you've got this postman who comes in who's also bigoted, just like Crease in that stupid, ignorant, happy way of being bigoted of going you should charge admission for this place you know just so much the other and then you go to okinawa there's the american air base you've got the american troops in the village but not knowing the name of the village they only know it as their base it didn't feel as well developed because i couldn't put my finger on it but is there some subtext running through this about japanese american relations i i kind of got the same feeling as you arnie you know when Crease uses the word slope. I'm like, are they really just trying to make him more of a bad guy? He, you know, he was a jerk in the last, whole last movie. He was a jerk in this movie. He broke Johnny's second place trophy. Do they really have to throw in the racial slur to just make him that more, much more extreme? Yeah, it's something I noticed. I don't know if there's anything to it. I don't, you know, have a clear memory of the times, but after Karate Kid 1 came out, I'm sure there's a lot of people going around speaking with faux Asian accents and doing that kind of thing. Wax on, wax off. You know, that whole kind of thing. So I don't know. Maybe it's some kind of commentary on that. I don't know. Arnie, why do you think they even included the airbase portion of this movie, mentioning the airbase? Um, having them not being able to find the village because the air base was there, all those kind of things. You think it's because they're doing this theme because it was in the movie, but if, if what you're saying is true, it didn't hit home completely because I, I didn't really understand why it was there completely. Let me tell you a couple of thoughts I had because I, I agree with you. It's poorly developed in this film. It is not well explored. Everything in the last movie was so tight here. You know, I walked away and I really had to think, why was that base there? And why were, were there these racism shown in the States? I know from the director's commentary of part one, the writer of these films was very versed in Okinawan history. Maybe he was making a statement about the um, westernization, the trampling of their culture. Maybe it was a political thing. Keep in mind the 80s, one of the other big things about the 80s is Americans feared the Japanese. I know a lot of bigots who said they couldn't take us over with guns, so they're going to take us over by buying us. They bought the Mariners. I mean, and recently, I I think I heard it again. Didn't they buy Anheuser-Busch or something? Yeah. Rockefeller Center. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot. I think that the writer and director were trying to make a statement about Japanese-American relations, but what they're saying, I, I I don't know. It's poorly done. I know far more what they're saying about what you do with a little girl's stuck at a bell tower than what to do with <laughs> an air base. Arnie, th- there's another line that that fits into this thing that I just remembered. It, it's Daniel. You know, he's talking about uh, World War II, and he's like, "Oh, it's horrific. Like ten thousand Americans died here." And then Mr. Miyagi says, 
Well, yeah, and then like millions of Japanese and Okinawans died also. Yeah. So again, I think it was trying to bring that awareness. It wasn't very well developed, though. Whatever they were trying to do with that, it just doesn't go anywhere. And it really disappears after the first hour. Jacob, when you said you liked the first part of this movie, I thought you might have meant the first half. This first hour, after we do the six months in the future, God, it was it just me or does it drag? Well, Arnie, you mentioned when we did the Back to the Future podcast that that table scene when they talk about the enchantment of the sea dance, you use the word lazy screenwriting, and Stuart and I disagree with you. Here is a great example of lazy screenwriting exposition. When they have Daniel and Miyagi talking about Okinawa, and then they continue it on the airplane when he's reading the book. Lazy, lazy exposition throwing everything out there. There has to be a better way to do this. I have this in my notes that like there's all these scenes of traveling where they're just getting this forced exposition and scene setting out. They don't even move. They sit in one place or one person's at the bed, one person's packing a suitcase. And at the plane, they're sitting next to each other. One's trying to sleep when Daniel's bothering him. And let's not forget that they're in the freaking line to get a passport and they don't move in line. And you got to wonder why they spent the time setting the camera up so many times for so many shots in so many locations. Just to talk more about Okinawan history and culture. And they never bring up the fact that they're prone to hurricanes, which becomes a big deal at the end. Like, it comes out of nowhere. It does. It really does. You'd think they might have mentioned the climate in addition to some of the other history. The first movie has its slow build. It really does. But the entire movie is punctuated with scenes of intense violence as Daniel continually gets his ass kicked. Here, because it's Miyagi's story and Miyagi and Sato, if they fight, they fight to the death. You don't get any action. And it's not until like 80 minutes in it that Daniel and Chosen finally boil over to some violence. Not that I'm only in it for the violence, but just this whole first hour is so much heavy exposition and it's just a poor poorly paced movie overall. Well, I I said with the first one, you know, I compared Mr. Miyagi. He starts off as, you know, that magical other, but they overcome that with his character development. I felt the opposite happened here where they get to Okinawa and I I don't know anything about Okinawa. This might be very realistic how they portrayed it, but it just seemed like this mythical fairy tale land. They still lived in these old type of houses and, you know, listened to 50s music and it was just... It came off as very inauthentic, and it never earned, I I guess, trust from me that they were telling me uh, a story that I need to invest myself in. It just seemed like, you know, if you study uh, myth, the the first film plays great. You know, you have the character, he goes through the hero's journey. And after the hero's journey, so many times it's about the hero – you know, he goes off to the land of the gods and then he has to return. And this seems like it, it's never you never see those stories in, in you know mainstream Hollywood because they're boring where the person has to return to live as a normal human. And that's what you get here is he goes off to this magic fairy tale land, Okinawa. And I don't know. It just yeah, it's boring. I felt that he was going back in time. And even Daniel said uh, it's the uh, land that time forgot. And I was thinking, obviously, it's not the same thing as Back to the Future, but a lot of the same things from Back to the Future came up here with the misunderstanding of expressions and things like that. That I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but it was very reminiscent to me of it. And I felt that Back to the Future did it so much better, and I cared about those characters so much more. Here, the more Daniel spent with Kumiko, Kumiko, I just didn't care. They didn't give me the same kind of connection. You said before they had to give the love story between the two of them, 
I was much more interested in Mr. Miyagi's story than I was with Daniel's. Yeah, this movie, obviously, we're all on the same page that it has some flaws. I want to say that I do like some things about this movie, and I hope we get to them. Me too. During this first hour, there's a lot of just character introductions, and it's just not done as well or as seamlessly as it was in the first Karate Kid movie. As for why so much is on Daniel, the problem is this movie's called The Karate Kid, and at this point, yeah, Ralph Macchio was on the cover of Teen Beat. So you just can't go so far in the other direction. And for all our complaints, this movie was a bigger success than the first movie. This movie was a huge box office blockbuster. Because of the first movie on video cassette and cable, am I right? I mean, it's the reason it was such a big hit because the first one it was an okay hit in the theaters, but really found its way on video cassette. I could be mistaken on that, Arnie. You might know more. But this movie, I know I went to see this movie in the theater because I saw the first one at home. I had the same experience. I saw the first one on VHS, went and saw the second one. However, there are a history of movies that do well on video and their sequels suck and they bomb. This movie did click with audiences. It just apparently didn't click, at least during the first hour with the three of us. Well, when I was 11 or 12 years old, when I saw this movie the first time, I thought it was great. I really yeah, because you're, you're rooting for Daniel. I'm a kid. I like, why yeah. would I like this movie? I mean, come on. Yeah, I liked it as a kid because you're going for Daniel. And this is a story about Daniel that should be about Miyagi. And now seeing it as a, you know, older person... I want Miyagi's story because that's what this should be. Right. It should be. And to a large degree, it is. The scenes that work for this first hour are the scenes with Miyagi. Miyagi and his father seeing each other again. And the father has that great line, if this is a dream, let me never wake up. If I am Mm -hmm. awake, let me never sleep. Those scenes click so well. The scenes with Sato. And doesn't Sato have a great voice? Miyagi. (laughs) I just love the voice. (laughs) Totally. You know what also I loved, um, Arnie, was the scene when Yuki tells Miyagi that she never married. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and both of their expressions or both of their faces, wow, that was great. See, that, that bothered me. Really? That, yeah, be, I, be, I understand. Again, it, it's like with Ali. I know why they never had her married because American audiences, if you watch the uh, Paul Verhoeven, um, his commentary on Starship Troopers, he talks about the Denise Richards character. If you've seen the movie and she has two love interests where she goes for both guys. And when they were doing test screenings, American audiences hated that. She was the whore because she has two love interests. And for some reason, we, you know, most mainstream audiences can't process that. Hey, you know, you could have different feelings for different people throughout your life. I I thought it was awful. Here's this woman who, you know, broke, broke tradition by breaking up her arranged marriage and she ends up being an old spinster. She's the old librarian that never gets married because the one man she loved went away. She couldn't find someone else. I mean, you you get over that. Let me build on that, Jacob. I think it's very sweet, but by the same token, to me, it felt like this was undermining the great scene from the first movie where Miyagi's drunk and remembering the death of his wife and child. Miyagi fell deeply in love again. So, you know, how do you tell Yuki, oh, you waited? Uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Me too. Uh I thought that the love of Miyagi's life should have been the wife that died in the internment camp to justify that. It's now like Miyagi has a string of chippies, you know? I like the scene between the two actors. I see both of your points. I will go so far also to say is she knew where he was for a long time, yet she didn't contact him at all. And that was also on her at some point when she could have realized that it's been 45 years, somewhere in those years, that he even asked, why'd you contact me sooner? Yeah, why didn't you contact him sooner? That one made a little more sense. She could have actually flown to America, and they could have had a life together. 
So I don't feel so bad for her. I just like the scene where she told him that and his reaction and her reaction on their faces I thought was very emotional. Whether <laughs> The next logical steps, of course, as we're all pointing out, are completely valid. The acting portion right there was very sweet. I thought it was very, very sweet. It was, and I liked the fact that she was there to tell Miyagi that the father approved of Miyagi's leaving. On an emotional level, it completely sold itself to me in this movie. I, when I watched this movie one day after having seen part one, yeah, a couple <laughs> yeah. of things just didn't quite click as well. A little continuity flubbing going on there that just one kind of undermines the other a little bit. But yeah, the scene, as we all said, on the beach, just, oh boy, what a scene. Yeah, absolutely. The, and I said before, Machio is never going to win an acting award for me, but that scene he did so well on. It was on him to sell it. You know, all Pat Morita had to do was sit there and look sad. Arnie, I'm going to say one more thing to you on that. When Pat Morita was in that scene, he built to the tears. And I don't think Pat Morita was just sitting there looking sad. Pat Morita was doing some fine acting in that scene, and you have to give him props for what he was doing. Some of the hardest acting you could possibly do is sitting there and listen to the other actor. It's very difficult to do what he did. And to do it so well, I was watching him the entire time. He commanded my attention in that scene while Ralph Macchio was talking to him. I was watching his reactions, and man, he did some very good acting there. Yeah, I, I lost my shit during that scene. I did, because, there you, go. you know, Macchio was talking about holding his father's hand when he died, and I was holding my godfather's hand a couple months ago when he died, so it was rough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I would have liked that speech before my godfather had died, to be perfectly honest. I think I probably would have chalked it up as sappy and trite. I haven't lost my father, but I saw when, my, when his father passed away, like, I don't know. It was, it was hard to understand what he was going through. And that's when I was watching that scene, I was putting myself in that place. And it really helped me understand what my father is going through when he lost his dad. And man, it, it's a they should have just ended the movie there. <laughs> There's no reason to go on after that scene. It's it's such a great scene. There is reason to go on because so far the movie hasn't been very good. We've had some yes. wonderful notes. It doesn't get any better, though. It does for me because the fact is this movie really drags, but what you've got two antagonistic relationships now. You've got Mr. Miyagi against Sato, and then you've got Sato's even more evil nephew, Shozen, who makes Johnny look like Johnny Appleseed. Do you know? Did you see the six pack on Chosen? I have seen him in other movies. He is phenomenal. They had a great advantage of this movie having Asian actors <laughs> as martial artists. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I know him from is Better Off Dead. He's the guy. There's. there's Are you two, serious? He's, he, there's two Asian brothers. One yeah. doesn't speak any English at all. The other one learned how to speak English by watching the Wild World of Sports. And he's the guy who says language lessons. Is no he really that guy from a champion or something like that? Yeah, it's exactly the same guy. He's done a lot of stuff. He's got a very distinctive face chosen. But, you know, here, these two, Sato and Chosen, are meant to be so evil. It's not bad enough that Sato wants to kill Miyagi over the girl. But Sato must also have swindled the entire village out of their land and now rents their own land back to them. And Chosen, it's not bad enough that he's just Sato's minion. He has to be ripping the villagers off by using fake weights. But I have a question for you guys. How do fake weights that are lighter work? I don't understand that. 
Because it would seem like you'd have to put more weights on to balance the bushel and thus say the bushel weighs more, thus paying more, huh? Yeah, I, di- I didn't get that. I'm like, well, if they're plastic weights, you, you know, it doesn't work. So you've got that building up. And really here you have another trope of sequels where you basically get the same story as last time because you've got Daniel romancing Kumiko while Chosen keeps bullying Daniel. But this time his motivations aren't. Yeah, he's aren't. He doesn't want the girl. He just doesn't like Daniel because I guess he's associated with Mr. Miyagi, who's uncle. I mean, what I understand as the movie goes on, as Daniel and him keep confronting each other, why Chosen gets a grudge on him. But originally, this guy's just a jerk. You know, I I didn't really get it up front. Whereas Johnny in the first movie, Daniel was talking to his girl and then tried to defend girl, and, and it got in the way of their argument. And Johnny got a way to you know pick a beef with this kid and then beat the crap out of him and we saw the movie we saw the movie <laughs> but here we didn't have that same kind of connection with the girl so what was it it was just he's associated with my uncle's enemy unless i missed something no that was it but i did like though that chosen started off just kind of being a bully because of his uncle which you know his uncle's the richest guy in the entire village so you could see where that arrogance would come from but he really only got the bloodlust on daniel after daniel started showing him up yeah, exactly hit him in the groin yeah he hit him in the balls man you don't do that no you do mr miyagi taught him that didn't you see the scene where miyagi drops a rag and then is showing daniel when i dropped the rag you don't do that that's just a code among men you don't the code hit- among men is if you're getting your butt kicked you do whatever you no, need to you never go for the balls that, that's Jacob, just- you, you didn't notice how convenient it was the scene before that scene in the bar when he hits him in the nuts that miyagi taught him about the rag on the floor i, I mean I, it was so obvious that they were setting us up for that no, no i get that it's just it's you just don't do that in a fight man <laughs> that, that will bring you dishonor I see. But it was part of the Miyagi's – didn't they call it the oldest weapon or something in the was dojo? That, was that the wax on, wax off of this movie? <laughs> the, the the crotch shot? Drop the rag. Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly what circumstances the rag scene happened, but it was. It was drop the rag, and then uh, Daniel-san almost got punched in the nuts. And Daniel was down there on the floor with the wallet to, to contemplating the balls for a while, too. He had to decide if it was honorable and then decided he needed his tuition <laughs> money. That that bothered me. Is, you know, Daniel used his tuition money to go to Okinawa, and we're all like, okay, yeah. But they had to have a way to get Daniel his tuition money back. Ugh. Well, let's talk about that scene really quickly. I know the scene much better than from this movie, but from the NES Karate Kid <laughs> video game. That was a that <laughs> game was a nightmare. That was so hard. I never could beat it. Yeah, me neither. But they had this scene in it. They had this ice thing, and it was like one of those cut scenes or something. You had to try to mm-hmm. cut through all the ice. Don't you remember that? Yeah, it had a mini game. You also had the one yeah. with the catch the fly. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that's why I always remember when I watched this scene is that oh, yeah, that video game. I kind of thought, though, that Daniel's romance with Kumiko was sweet. I liked the flirtation. I thought her misunderstanding of his colloquialisms got a little old. Take yes. it on the road. But we are on the road. You know, it was that war thin. But I thought I liked that she had her own aspirations to be a dancer and that Daniel, you know, he was heartbroken. He was on the rebound. He was in a different place. You know, it's uh, different zip code. So I, I kind of went with this. I like the romance. And Didn't you think this one was not as well-earned? I mean, obviously, you have to think that wasn't well-earned as was Allie's. But I have to say, the entire romance, to me, seemed like it wasn't needed for this movie for me. I understand he can become friends with this girl, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but they had this beautiful scene with Miyagi and with Yuki with the tea ceremony. And when they, he he does it with Kumiko, 
I, did, I just didn't buy it as much. I was like, how are you falling in love with this girl for knowing her for three days after coming off that huge relationship with Allie? Your rebound relationship is one thing, but that tea ceremony to me has special meaning. It's a tradition there in that country. When, those, when the two old folks did it, it meant something so much more. When they did it, I felt it was like, eh. All right, can I, can I tell you what I thought the tea ceremony was? Please. I thought it was foreplay. Oh, yeah. I really did because at the end of it, she takes her hair down. I think that this is her way of seducing Daniel. And, you know, all I could think of is with all the herbal supplements of today, I'm like, <laughs> what is that tea? And I was thinking about uh, the golden child where there's <laughs> yak loin. Good to keep the yang up. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I, well, no, was I that was there an earlier tea scene? Yeah, with Miyagi. Okay, I must see. I must have been glazing over because, <laughs> like, I see that and I'm like, okay, so this is something special. This tea scene. I don't know why, but I, I guess I missed something. Wow, you must have fallen asleep. This, 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 this movie did not keep my interest like the first one. It just clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I missed the ball shot. I missed the tea scene. But yeah, I mean, that, that tea scene, it wasn't, you know, a declaration of emotional love. It was a declaration of physical love. See, the thing is, though, before that, you'll love America. Will America love me? I know one part of it does already. And I'm like, really? And then they have the tea scene, and that's supposed to be love. And I'm like, Ugh. it just felt so labored to me. I, didn't, I don't buy this love story as much as you did. I see what they were trying to do. It was especially after last movie with that wonderful love story with Allie. This one does not work for me. It doesn't work as well as Allie. I agree, but maybe it's because there's so little for me to hold on to for the first hour of this movie <laughs> that I cling to these two girlfriend relationships that Miyagi and Daniel-san have. But it does work. It's not as perfect. Isn't this whole movie is not as perfect as the first one? Everything about the first one pretty much is perfect. Here, it worked. Did it work well? It worked. Hmm, interesting. This is the part of the, of the podcast if we had roles reversed. I'd say you would call me out as being a little bit of a favoritism on this, showing a little bit of uh, giving a little bit more to the movie than it may deserve. I can see why you would want to do that, and I'm not going to hold you to it. I'm just going to point it out that perhaps you're being a little too kind to it because uh, you like the movie. You like some of the parts of the movie. I like some of the parts of this movie too, Arnie. I'm not all down on it. Yeah. But I'm just talking about this one part didn't work for me. Y you know why I might be a little kind to this is because I like the actress, and I've never seen her in anything else, I don't think, but the actress who plays Kumiko, she works for me in this role. She works for me in her, you know, her shyness and her dancing and the way she teaches Daniel to dance. I found it all incredibly sweet. I agree. She was quite good. And so had it been not as good of an actress or just not as one that had the chemistry with Daniel, I might not have bought it as much. But I like the scene where she takes him to the TV store and he's like, what, you want to go into electronics? Those scenes worked for me. And again, it was so much better than the Okinawan history lessons and the air base that I just didn't understand why they're there. Would you say it's because the character of Daniel is so different or if not well as well played as by Ralph Macchio in this movie that contributed to this? Because I think that's a main pr problem with this movie as well as Daniel is not exactly the same character. Now, you can say that he matured since the last movie, but the last movie, it's in six months and a lot of things have happened, but honestly, it's not exactly the same character. And I felt that Ralph Macchio was not as comfortable in the role as he was last time. 
And I think that was a major hindrance in these scenes with her. Let me get my requisite Star Wars reference of the podcast out of the way. It kind of reminded me of Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi versus Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back. In The Empire Strikes Back, you had a very impulsive, emotional Luke Skywalker who ran off to Cloud City. And in Return of the Jedi, he is a Jedi and he's very serene. And I kind of think Mark Hamill didn't act as well in Jedi as he did in Empire. Here, you know, I kind of feel like Machio won his tournament and now he's the Jedi. He doesn't quite question Miyagi and that that kind of detracts from the movie as a whole he's too accepting of Yoda's wisdom now you know to go along with that analogy I think in both instances the thing you're missing there is the script the script of Empire Strikes Back versus the script of Return of the Jedi the script of Karate Kid versus the script of Karate Kid Part 2 there is more for the people to play in the first movies we're talking about than in the second ones which I'm not saying is the only reason Ralph Macchio did not have the same game he had the first movie, but it certainly has to be considered as a factor that the script is nowhere near as strong. Like I said, this is Miyagi's movie, and, and they had to shoehorn Daniel in there. And that, that's how it feels every time he comes up. It's just like, okay, time to get our team beat cover. Let's throw Daniel on there. Let's you know give him a kiss, whatever. Dance with the girl. The movie is called The Karate Kid. It's not called The Karate Old Man. <laughs> One of the scenes, that, that when they go to that cafe, uh, Daniel and Kumiko, they go to that cafe with all the 50s music playing, and they have that slow song playing. Did that remind you of Earth Angel from Back to the Future? You mean it wasn't Earth Angel? Oh, my God. I had <laughs> was, was it? It was, new additions, it was New Edition's version of Earth Angel. It was a hit. Oh, okay. So were they, were they trying to go off of the – because I know Back to the Future came out a year before in 85 – so were they trying to riff off that? What was going on there? I'm telling you, this whole movie reminded me of Back to the Future constantly, and this is another reason. Yes, they <laughs> had the exact same kind of scene there, although it was did a little bit different there because Daniel was able to show us that he could dance from his mom. So it, it was very reminiscent, again, of, of Back to the Future. It's like he went back in time to a whole different world, and he's confronting Biff in this in this place and just it just was very amazing. I do have a friend who went to Cuba. Now Cuba is a slightly different situation, but that is what Cuba was like in the 90s was the you know the 50s and 60s music and the old cars and all that. This very well could be very accurate. So during the tea scene between Daniel and Kumiko, the wind starts to blow. Again, it's the storm. Just like in no, I'm kidding. It's not the same thing as Back to the Future, but it it certainly was a nice transition as Arnie said, and I thought this storm scene was a really entertaining scene. I actually liked this scene very much. I liked it. This is, again, kind of what made me think of the Yoda-Luke relationship is people are out there stranded and all the men, women, and children are staying safe. And then Miyagi goes, Daniel, we go help. Wait, why Why is it the job of an eight-year-old girl to ring the hurricane bell? <laughs> because she's small Seriously. enough to get up there? It was Maybe she was bad in school that week. Maybe she didn't do her homework. And is that is that an assigned duty? Hey, if a hurricane ever comes, you need to climb up the ladder during the hurricane and ring a bell. I mean, everyone's in the bunker. You could stop. I kind of thought in this podcast about how there's so many movies like Avatar and Dances with Wolves about the white man savior. None of the Okinawans will go and help this little girl. Well, actually, wait a minute. The reason they were out there was because Sato's hut fell down. Initially, they went out there because there was a woman with two children yeah. who needed help oh, getting to the shelter. And, and the two girls came out, too. And Daniel's son and, and Miyagi plus Yuki and Kumiko all went out. Right. And then then Sato's hut collapses. Was Sato just waiting like for Miyagi to show up? He's like, I don't care if there's a hurricane. 
Miyagi has to show up for this fight anyway. Why why was he in there? He was meditating and preparing. Was that was that the shrine that they showed? Yeah. Like I had no idea yeah, what that was. That was the shrine they showed. They were setting up where he was. Now, one thing that bothers me here is this thing collapses and shows and runs away. Uncle dead. But Miyagi goes, the guy's quite visible. He's not even under rubble. He's lying there flailing. Quite obviously, Uncle not dead. And more, Miyagi and Daniel-san are like pulling the board off of him, trying with all their might, obviously to pull the board off and shows it's like, now you kill me. Obviously, we're trying to help you, dude. What, what the hell? Ca- calm down. Yeah, it was just too over the top for me. It was. Again, like the very first scene of the movie, Miyagi's doing the karate chop thing. Does anyone, even Sato, believe that this is what Miyagi's going to do? Obviously, he's going to break the board and Magically, Sato's just fine. I could have swore that board broke in more than one place, but I didn't rewind it to see it. He hit the board in the middle. Sato's been hitting this board for how many years? And he couldn't break it. No, I think this was like a two by four in the ceiling or something. I always thought it was yeah. that board that Sada was hitting. Well, how did he get under it? This was just a beam. Oh, how much better would it have been then if it was that symbolic beam that they found in the forest that day? I would have shot my it. TV if they did that. <laughs> well, I'm saying to you, this whole movie is full of stuff like that. For all these years, including this watch, I thought it was that exact board he got trapped under. You're telling me it was just a, a tinder from the it. You've loved this movie for so long because of that and you've ruined it. <laughs> It's yeah. a timber from the roof. That's what I took it as. Because the board he was hitting was much, much smaller. Okay. I thought Daniel pulling out his belt to get the electricity away was very quick thinking. I was remember when I was 12 years old watching the movie, and I was like, wow, that's really smart. How did he come up with that so quickly? Here, this time watching, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's because you've been thinking about it for 20 years, Brock. I thought it was clever when I was a kid. I, that's always the point I was trying to make. When I was a kid, I was like, that Daniel's clever. But now there's a twist ending because we always thought that, like, again, another obligatory Star Wars reference, Sato was the Emperor and Chosen was Vader, but Sato returns to the light side. Miyagi saved his life and now all's hunky-dory and Daniel becomes his teacher as Daniel gets to have the party in the castle. So we get to the final scene and Chosen is shown to be an even bigger jerk than usual because not only does he beat up Daniel, but he ruins Kumiko's dance by coming in like Batman, rappelling down the line. <laughs> I loved that scene as a kid, but yeah, it was kind of goofy now. I completely agree with you, Jacob. I loved it as a scene. I thought it was so cool this guy in this yellow vest comes sliding down those lights. My wife got home from work right as I'm watching this scene. She's like, what's going on? And I pause the movie and I go, well, she's doing a dance, but Batman in the background's about to interrupt and try to kill her. And he's, she's like, Batman's in this movie (laughs) (laughs) that's worse than i thought so we finally get to the end fight because it's a karate kid movie doesn't it have to end with ralph macchio doing karate moves i guess two things bother me about this the last movie we all learned about the crane kick Mm. and when done correctly there is no defense this time we're learning about the drum move which is the miyagi secret to karate and the drum move is apparently we just pummel our enemies in the face But here, Daniel decides, all right, Shosen's beating me up. I'm going to do this crane kick. Shosen has a defense against it. I thought there was no defense. Well, Daniel didn't do it right, apparently. Apparently. (laughs) Actually, if you watch it, Shosen kind of, he does a a quick little jerk, like he's going to go for him, and then steps back. So Daniel just did it too early. He got fooled by that move there. Okay. During the first movie, when he said, when done correctly, there is no defense, I thought, well, in the next movie, the other guy blocks it. And so then I was thinking to myself, well, maybe Shosen learned the move from Sato because Sato learned from the same teacher Miyagi did. And therefore, you know, he, he knew it was coming by that whole... By the stance. Yeah, exactly. Because Johnny never saw that sort of thing before. But that's giving the movie a little bit 
of leeway, and you have to choose to do that. I I think the drum technique, I, I agree with you, is the new magic potion. Yeah, but it's just not as famous. You know, in Hamlet 2, they don't say he's doing the drum <laughs> technique. They say he's doing the crane kick. But the thing is, I, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to go, oh, Chosen is so much better than Johnny because that kick took out Johnny and Chosen blocked it. But it just bugs me that in the last movie they said there is no defense except for what Chosen knows, which is the defense. Yeah. Here's here's the problem. First of all, there's that scene at the beginning of the movie where Daniel's doing the nails to relieve stress. He's nailing those boards and he's striking it with one hit. There's no payoff for that. There's like no move that ties into that, which bugs me because whenever he has to do menial labor, it's going to turn into a karate move. That never pays off that one scene. So there's that. You have the scene where the, when they're in Okinawa, Mr. Miyagi takes Daniel's son into, the, into his father's dojo, and they have those rules. And the rule is, you know, karate, it's always used for defense. The second rule is read the first rule. He introduces the drum technique and how it's a, a move to avoid fighting. There's all this talk about pacifism in this movie. You know, if, if you don't join a war, then you don't die in a war. Uh, there's the opening scene where Miyagi's taking on Kreese, where he never throws a punch. He just uh, dodges punches. And so I thought, okay – Daniel's going to just start dodging all these punches. There's a statue behind him, and Chosen's just going to beat the crap out of his hands and, and finally just be defeated. Just like Kreese. That would have been a nice circular ending there. Well, the whole thing was about pacifism and not fighting, and the, you know Miyagi leaves because he doesn't want to fight because he's a pacifist, and they end with a fight. It, it just goes against all the themes of this movie. I wanted it to tie in somehow with all these themes of pacifism and not fighting and using defense. When you have this drum move where it's Daniel beating the hell out of shows and just pummeling him with his fist, it goes against all those themes. I agree with you. I think that Daniel had to stop Chosen, but I think it would be punch him once like that, see if he gets back up. Punch him again like that, see if he gets back up, instead of just repeatedly pummeling. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is, Chosen wants to fight Daniel because he dishonored him. He, uh, Daniel saved the girl, and Chosen wouldn't save the girl. And so at the end, you have Daniel doing this honk on his nose, and everyone laughing and cheering. Chosen's cool with that? And he stays <laughs> down? Like, he doesn't get he, back up and, just, and he hits him in the back of the head? He's going to stay down after that? Yeah, he's, he's like, okay, now I'm really dishonored, but I'm not going to kill him. It was so unsatisfying for me watching it this time, not as a child. I have just always hated the honk on the nose. It just It's too cartoony and, you know... Ugh. I thought it worked. I thought it worked for Mr. Miyagi did it just because of the humor Mr. Miyagi has. I agree it was a little weird, but I, I kind of always liked it, especially when I was a kid. But here at the end, I just didn't think it made any sense, considering it was life or death stakes. They're trying to tell us, and they actually did say it in the movie. This is not a tournament. This is real life. You, you know, They wanted the stakes to be so much higher at this last scene, and it just wasn't. There's a lot of things that just don't quite pay off as much as they should. By the same token, I think we get a lot better of a fight. Obviously, we don't get to see Daniel as much. Now the movie has changed. It's about the fight because we don't get close-ups of Daniel. Instead, we get far shots of Daniel's stunt double doing much better martial arts. <laughs> now it is Rocky. <laughs> it's Rocky 3 now. Rocky we've already three. we've jumped ahead. I don't know. This movie at times for for what it was supposed to be felt a little too dark with these bites to the death and I don't know. What, what did you think? Nobody died except for Miyagi's father of old age and perhaps a couple audience members during the first hour of boredom. <laughs> so it was 
fight to the death in a Voltron Transformers G.I. Joe kind of way, wasn't it? It was fight to the death, but nobody's going to die. Also, the fact that everybody spoke English, even when they were talking to each other, yeah, very rarely did they speak in Japanese to each other or Okinawan, whatever the actual language is there. And so I, I felt that they kind of, it was very light touch on all of this, sort of a very light touch to try to keep it in the family realm. You know, to kind of give a mea culpa to our last podcast, Brock, I kind of came down on you for calling The Karate Kid a kid's movie. I kind of felt like after Ralph Macchio got his teen beat reputation, perhaps this movie pandered a little bit to the younger audiences. Well, perhaps that's a good transition to our conclusions. Jacob, Arnie, do you recommend The Karate Kid Part 2? Jacob. You know what? Watch the first 10 minutes, which is really the conclusion of part one, and watch the scene on the beach, and that's all you need. I mean, I don't I don't think this movie's horrible. It, it's your typical sequel, which means it tries to up the ante from the first movie, but it, it doesn't have any of the real emotion, the, the, the real moments. You kind of know who the characters are now. You know, it doesn't have any of those real surprises. You know, if, if you're having a lazy Saturday and this might be on TV – I guess you could watch it. I, I get it. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't feel it's an awful film, but I, I don't recommend it, at, you know, by any means of the imagination. Arnie, I do recommend this movie. Now, perhaps that recommendation is writing a little bit on the coattails of the first movie, because were this movie to completely stand alone, I don't think I'd be invested in the characters of Daniel and Miyagi the way I am because of the first movie. But I think that their relationship, their interplay carries into this movie and continues to evolve their relationship in good ways. This is nowhere near as good movie as the first one. It's a weak recommendation, but I had a good time watching it. I go with it. The first hour is a bit of a drag, but once we got into the Daniel versus shows and stuff, it had me pretty much going and I was happy to go where it went. So watch one and two together is what you're saying. I do not recommend you see two if you've not seen one and it just happens to be coming on. You got to already care about these characters going in to get out of two what they're selling. I said last time that the first movie I always thought was a kid's movie. And I, as I recommended last movie, I said that movie can be enjoyed by many levels on, by different people of all ages. This movie is very much a kid's movie. And when I was a kid, I loved it. I thought it was great. I had got really into it because of what Arnie just said, because I liked the characters so much that I was willing to enjoy the characters, new adventure and all that kind of stuff. Watching it now as an adult, 20 plus years later, I, I can see very little of the characters that I loved, except for Mr. Miyagi, but I'm talking about Daniel in this movie. I can see very little of what I loved so much about Daniel in the first movie here. And so with him being in this movie, it felt very unsatisfying. So if I was 11-year-old watching this movie after watching the first movie, yeah, I very much would still enjoy this movie. But as an adult, I had a lot of trouble enjoying it. As we discussed in this podcast, there are so many things that this movie could have done that would have made it more enjoyable for all of us. And the first movie, we never said that. The first movie, we had so much fun with all different aspects coming at our age now and then thinking about when we watched it as a kid. It was just a whole different experience. We have reviewed a lot of sequels on these retrospective series, and this is far from the worst sequel we've ever seen. There is, it is a watchable movie. It is a C movie. It is right there in the C range of sequels. There is nothing wrong with watching this movie, but it really isn't a great movie. So I, I can't recommend it, but it's, this, it's the weakest of not recommends. It's right there on the border. I can't say to you, you got to watch this movie. If someone says to me, do you, do you really recommend I watch the Karate Kid series? I say, well, you got to watch the first one, and, and you can watch the second one. So far, we haven't gone to the other two yet. 
So that's what I'm saying is that it's the weakest of not recommends, but you could do worse. So there's my non-recommendation recommendation if you want. <laughs> it's right there down the middle. And now we get to part three. And honestly, I'm going to say – even though I've never seen the next Karate Kid, it's Karate Kid 3 I'm most excited to revisit because I just remember that movie as being really weird and confusing when I saw it in theaters and I've not seen it since. So I'm anxious to jump back into that dojo. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. I've only seen it once and I don't, I'm not really sure if I ever saw it from beginning to end. I think I saw it in pieces and parts when it was on cable because God knows I didn't see it that summer when it came out I saw it on cable the following year I was their opening day for showing I was that big of a fan of two oh, when I was man. a kid wow and the Peter Cetera song was all over my Walkman oh man <laughs> I had that I had the soundtrack of this guys I had the book I had the soundtrack of Karate Kid 2 I was into this movie when I was 12 years old loved this movie when I was 12 years old had a great time with it then that's a shame that as you get older some things just don't work as well for you and this is certainly one of them if you enjoy this podcast, please go to our website and download our other movies in our other retrospective series like Star Trek, Terminator, Friday the 13th if you're so, if you're so daring. It, it's all there at nowplayingpodcast.com. We have tons of series, all different kinds of tastes. Take your pick. If you want to discuss this movie review or other movies reviews we've done, you can do so on our forums and you can find that link at our homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive review so other people like yourselves can find us and listen to us as well. Seriously, leave us that review, please. Please go to iTunes, leave us that review. It's important. Please go to iTunes and leave us that review. You can become fans of us on Facebook. Please do that too, yes. Follow us on Twitter. Please do that too. And we, we really do mean it. We would love to hear your feedback. And, and if you like us, we like your support. And we will be joining you again when we review The Karate Kid Part 3 on our next podcast. Is it in 3D? Uh, you know, it'd be awesome, wouldn't it be? Karate Kid on? 3D. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for joining me. I'll talk to you then. Crane kick in your face. <laughs> hey! Mr. Miyagi! We did it! We did it! All right! Oh, Daniel, sir. Very good job. Go home. Get the best. Come morning. Start early, six o'clock. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the now playing Karate Kid Retrospective. You're too much TV. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new podcast from now until the release of the new Karate Kid film on June 11th. I think you talk too much. I think you're not concentrated enough. Lots of work to be done. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or recommend us to your friends. After. After what? After. After. You can follow Now Playing on Twitter or Facebook or in the Now Playing forums. Links to these pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh man, he's had enough! I'll decide when he's had enough, man! Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, all rights reserved. Podcast edited by Jay. The Karate Kid Films is copyright and trademark Columbia Pictures, and no infringement is intended.
So were they trying to riff off that? What was going on there? I'm telling you, this whole movie reminded me of Back to the Future constantly, and this is another reason you beat me to it again, Jacob. Why don't you just, <laughs> why don't you just take over both Brock and Jacob's sides? So then the hurricane comes. Are you guys ready for the hurricane? I'm ready for the hurricane. Rock me like a hurricane. (laughs) And it is a nice transition that they put that in, but there's a hurricane. Is it a hurricane or is it just like bad storm? A typhoon. It was a typhoon, yeah. (laughs) I thought a typhoon was a giant wave. No, that's a tidal wave. No, the typhoon (laughs) that like hit Indonesia is a giant tidal wave. That's what a typhoon is. No, that's a tsunami. Okay, tsunami. Get your climatology right, man. How dare I? Next time I'll come to the podcast prepared.